Welcome to another edition of Focus on the Kingdom. This is Anthony Buzzard inviting you again to search the Scriptures with us as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' famous and favorite topic, the Gospel or Good News about the Kingdom of God. It is impossible to overemphasize the need for studying Jesus in his first century Palestinian Jewish environment. Many students of the Bible forget that Jesus was a Jew and that original Christianity was an outgrowth of biblical Judaism, the faith of the Old Testament. Now, that's not to say that Christianity is simply a copy of Old Testament religion, but it is certainly true to say that Jesus' principal ideas, in fact, the heart of his gospel, the kingdom of God, is a concept deeply rooted in the Hebrew Bible, what we rather unfortunately call the Old Testament. The gospel, you see, according to Paul, in Galatians 3 and verse 8, the gospel was preached beforehand to Abraham. That must prove that the Christian gospel is rooted in the covenants and promises made with the patriarch Abraham. The Christian gospel, Paul said in Galatians 3 verse 8, was preached ahead of time to Abraham. It must make sense, therefore, that we should be acquainted with the promises and covenants made between God and Abraham if we are going to have an intelligent grasp of the Christian gospel. Remember, too, that in Galatians 3 and verse 29, Paul said this, If you belong to Christ, then you count as Abraham's offspring, and you are then heirs according to the promise. And what was the promise made to Abraham? Well, Paul defined it clearly in Romans 4 verse 13, the promise to Abraham and to his offspring was that they should be heir of the world, that they would inherit the earth, in other words, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, verse 5. Do you see then that the Christian gospel has everything to do with the land and the earth, this globe? It's surprising, therefore, that Christians constantly talk about going to heaven as their reward, as though the promised reward to Christians is something removed from this planet, to some super-celestial region unrelated to our globe. But that's fundamentally false to the promises of the New Testament. The Bible is deeply interested in the future of this earth. That's why then the earth and the land were promised to Abraham forever. That's why in Psalm 2, the Messiah is promised that his inheritance will be to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's why Jesus in Matthew 5, verse 5, said that the meek are going to have the earth as their inheritance. That's why Paul in Romans 4.13 spoke of inheriting the world as the promise made to Abraham. And in Galatians 3.29, that wonderful statement that if we belong to Christ, if we are Christians, then we are reckoned as the seed or offspring of Abraham and we become heirs of the promise made to Abraham, the promise that he and his offspring would inherit the world or the earth. The Bible scheme is essentially simple. We are to repent now and believe in the teachings of Jesus and in his death to cover our sins. And if we then survive and persist as Christians until the end, we will indeed gain the recompense and reward offered to the Christian, namely the inheritance of the kingdom or the world or the earth. Matthew 5, verse 5. Romans 4:13 and Galatians 3, verse 29. The promise to Abraham that he would be heir of the world 
is the essence of the Christian gospel confirmed and reaffirmed by Jesus Christ, who, as Paul said in Romans 15, was indeed a minister to the circumcision to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs. The Bible is one story, one coherent story, runs like a golden thread from the pages of the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament, right through the pages of the New, until in the book of Revelation that promise of the earth and the inheritance of the world finally comes to fulfillment at the resurrection. In the resurrection, all the patriarchs who are presently dead, unconscious, sleeping in the dust of the ground, will arise with the faithful of all the ages to take part in the great denouement of God's plan, namely the ordering and the reordering of the world on a sound and sane basis with justice filling our world. The earth is going to be filled indeed with the knowledge of God as the waters cover the sea. That's the great promise enshrined in Jesus' famous gospel, the gospel about the kingdom of God. And that's the message to which we're invited with Jesus' first command to repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. When Jesus embarked on his intensive evangelistic campaign in Galilee around about 27 A.D., he challenged his audiences to repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom of God. You'll find that clearly laid out in Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. That's where Christianity begins. It begins with our intelligent response to Jesus' first command, repent and believe in the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus' summons to a radical change of heart was based on the fact that God was one day going to usher in the worldwide kingdom promised by Daniel and all the prophets and promised indeed to Abraham in the great covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 12, Genesis 13, Genesis 15, and Genesis 17. Intelligent belief in that promise of the kingdom is therefore to be the disciples' first step. Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15. It's a very considerable mistake to believe that only the death and resurrection of Jesus count in the gospel. If that were true, then what was Jesus doing for a long period of time, some three and a half years before his death and subsequent resurrection? If you look at the 18th chapter of Luke, which describes a period of time late in the ministry of Jesus, you'll find that at that point the disciples did not understand the death and resurrection of Jesus, and yet they had successfully responded to the gospel of the kingdom of God. They themselves had been preaching the gospel under the tutelage of Jesus and had even been sent out independently of Jesus to preach that same gospel to the public. The disciples understood the gospel. Jesus preached the gospel. And yet at that stage, the death and resurrection of Jesus played no part in the message. That must prove to any unprejudiced reader of the New Testament that the death and resurrection of Jesus is only part of the gospel and the gospel of the kingdom is the fundamental element underlying the whole of the Christian message. The nature of Jesus' activity and that of the apostles was not exactly like what we today call preaching a sermon. It was that of a herald making a public announcement on behalf of the one God of Israel. And the word herald today is associated properly with newspapers. 
I was recently in Boston where the Boston Herald was being advertised. Heralding is making public announcements, and that's the nature of Jesus' preaching ministry. The thrust of Jesus' message was that each individual should undertake a radical redirection of his life in view of the certainty of the coming kingdom of God. That was, and still is, the essence of the Christian gospel. How can it be otherwise when it's the gospel message which came from the lips of Jesus himself? Mark chapter 1, verses 14 and 15, and in Luke 4, verse 43, we'll find that Jesus reckoned the preaching of the gospel of the kingdom to be the whole driving force behind his missionary activity. It's a matter of common sense to recognize that by using the term kingdom of God, Jesus would have evoked, in the minds of his audiences, thoughts of a divine, worldwide government on earth, with its capital at Jerusalem. That is certainly what the kingdom of God would have meant to Jesus' contemporaries. The writings of the Hebrew prophets, which Jesus considered as a Jew to be divinely inspired messages from God himself, the authorized word and oracle of God, those prophets had unanimously promised the arrival in the future of a new era of peace and prosperity on earth. The book of Daniel is typical of that message of hope, of brilliant hope for the future, Daniel had spoken of a time coming when, and I quote, the sovereignty and kingship and the splendors of all the kingdoms under the heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the Most High. Daniel 7:27. And I was reading there from the Jerusalem Bible. This ideal government or kingdom would rule forever and God's people would be victorious in a renewed earth. Peace would extend across the globe. The fact is that the term kingdom of God unambiguously refers to a divine world government on earth to be introduced, as all the prophets had foretold, by a supernatural upheaval in world affairs. The expectation of a new order on earth was the national hope of Israel at the time when Jesus began to preach. That this was so can be demonstrated by examining the writings of the prophets of Israel as well as the literature which followed the closing of the Old Testament Bible, the Old Testament canon. And so to announce the coming of the kingdom of God involved both a threat and a promise, a promise and a menace, if you like, to those who responded to the message by believing it and reordering their lives accordingly, there was a grand promise of gaining a place in the glories of the future divine rule or kingdom. But to the rest, the kingdom would threaten destruction, as God, in his judgment day, executed punishment upon any not found worthy of entering the kingdom of God when it came. This theme, this simple theme, of the two destinies laid before man, governs the whole New Testament. If you read the New Testament anew with that scheme in mind, the prospect of the kingdom or of destruction at the second coming of Christ the story will become coherent. Everything in the New Testament is geared towards helping us to prepare by the reformation of our character under the grace of God to prepare for that great prospect of entering the kingdom of God and inheriting the earth with Jesus at his return. Now, there are some barriers in the 20th century to believing the simplicity of this gospel message. The association of the kingdom of God with a spectacular divine intervention in the future 
leading to the establishment of a new world order, has proven to be an embarrassment to much of the theology and Bible study of the last 1600 years. Various techniques have been employed to eliminate from Jesus' teaching this central notion of the kingdom of God as a real government to be imposed even by force upon our world. However, the vision of the prophets which Jesus came to confirm, according to Romans 15 and verse 8, is unmistakably clear. And there's ample evidence in the New Testament to show that Jesus shared with his contemporaries that hope for an actual exterior kingdom in which he and his followers would enjoy positions of authority. What, for example, could be more explicit than the Savior's promise to the faithful Christians as follows, To those, he said, who prove victorious and keep working for me until the end, I will give them the authority over the pagans which I myself have been given by my Father to rule them with an iron scepter and shatter them like earthenware. Those who prove victorious I will allow to share my throne just as I was victorious myself and took my place with my Father on his throne. You will find those extraordinary promises of world leadership in Revelation 2 verse 26 and Revelation 3, verse 21. Our time is running out for today. We invite you to request from us our free book on the kingdom of God. In it we detail many more texts describing the nature of the kingdom of God as it will be established on the earth by Jesus at his return. Join us again as we continue with our investigation of Jesus' favorite topic, the gospel about the kingdom of God.